um, that, that you know, spoke to the summary of the perseverance of this, the saints. Um, the lyrics were originally written by Augustus Toplady, who was known for uh, Rock of Ages in the uh, 1700s. But the version we've been singing in church has been a little modernized and the music has been made more modern. So I'm giving a shout out then and copyright to Sovereign Grace music. But um, so what I did here, just in this little handout, is sort of um, show some of the biblical basis for the words there. A debtor to mercy alone, a covenant mercy I sing. Um, so let me read the verses from eight, and then I'll try playing the song. And um, but just then, here are some of the verses that remind me of. So then, brothers, we are debtors, but not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. Eight ten. If Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. Of course, his righteousness. Five nineteen. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. 5.9. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him through the wrath, from the wrath of God. 8.29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. 8.28, for I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And finally, who shall separate us from the love of God uh, in Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? And then also there's so many biblical allusions in this wonderful song, but the last verse begins with my names on the palms of your hands. That's going back to Isaiah 49. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. So what I'm going to try to do is play, it might sound a little tinny because it's coming over this and then just scroll along with the song. I come with your righteousness on my humble offering to bring the judgments of your holy law. With me can have nothing to do. My Savior's obedience and blood hide all my transgression. The work which your goodness began, the 
Thank you, Dory. Wonderful. Yay. Um, you may have noticed <clears throat> that wonderful phrase in the last stanza, Indelible Grace. It's uh, from that phrase that the RUF music folks, Kev Kevin Twitt and company in Nashville, named their music operation Indelible Grace, and they also have a version of that song. So thank you. That's just absolutely wonderful. I'm going to take that as our opening prayer, and I am going to go to screen share and pull up for you our handout. Now, it's essentially the same handout that I had up last week. I've made some minor, alt um, what do you call them, alterations to it. And the first thing I want to show you all is uh, I want to announce to you what we're going to do for the next two weeks after today, Feb 21 and 28. I wanna, I've got a 20-point 20 20 handout, if you, if you can believe it called How to Care for Your Next Pastor. And um, the reason we're doing this is on Tuesday night at the session meeting, I led your ruling elders through some thoughts and a handout that I put together called How to Care for Your Next Pastor. And that was designed for the ruling elders. 
And then Dory, when he emailed me uh, later in the week, some thoughts, he, he said I ought to, when we were talking about how to finish this class the next two weeks, he thought perhaps I could do some variation of that for, the, for you, the congregation. And I went right to work on that. That was a wonderful idea. So I'm letting you know that for the next two weeks, we will do, uh, and I'll do a screen share, have a long handout for you, uh, how to care for your next pastor. I think it's going to take two full um, sessions to do that. It's, it, right now it's 20 points. Who knows how many by the time we get there. So that's just a heads up. I'm going to put that in e-news because frankly I would like everyone in the church, if, unless they're in Jamie's class, to hear my thoughts as a pastor on how you can care for your next pastor. So that's looking ahead. Let's just jump right in then to our handout. Uh, we, we are ended on question four last week. I don't need to review it, but just to remind you, the reason we are looking at questions is because in verse 31 of chapter 8, Romans 8, Paul is, is a, he, he summed up the first 30 verses of 8 and almost the whole epistle up to that point by saying, what shall we say to these things? He answers that question with five questions. And that's how we broke it down. So what should we say to all the grace, all the mercy, all the love that's been lavished upon us in Jesus Christ? We should be left with unbridled confidence that we are the Lord's and that whatever is happening in our lives is under his sovereign control. We are safe, safe, safe in the Lord's hand. And so he answers that question. What do we say to these things with five questions anticipating the full range of things that could threaten our well-being. And uh, so we got to question four, who's to condemn? And we looked at that, I think, at the conclusion last time. And I just wanted to point out to you this, uh, what Paul is inviting us to do, which is compare your foes, sin, Satan, persecutors, sickness, calamity. He's inviting you to compare them to the reigning victorious, irrepressibly generous, interceding Christ. Christ is reigning on your behalf. Christ is victorious for you. Christ is irrepressibly generous, not withholding anything you need to thrive in knowing him, enjoying him, and getting to his presence forever. And indeed, he is uh, interceding for us. That's how Paul ends verse 35, who indeed is interceding for us. We're reminded of that wonderful illusion of Jesus reigning with the Father in Psalm 1010. He is uh, lifted up on high and reigning at the right hand of the Father. So let's move on then to the last question he asks in this series of five, verse 35, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Who is condemn us? Who can bring a charge? And who? So it's three who's. Part of me says, Paul, why didn't you say what will separate us from the love of Christ? But he gives a third who in this succession of questions. Who is there to condemn? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? And the final uh, who is who will separate us from uh, the love of Christ? And when you see the phrase love of Christ, think through Jesus, because I am bound to Jesus Christ, I'm in union to Jesus Christ. This is what faith does. 
faith unites you to Jesus. So that what's true of Jesus is true of you. We're united to Jesus Christ and therefore as secure in the universe as Jesus is. But nonetheless, let's go ahead and ask the question, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And when you see there the love of Christ, think of the, the, the love that you have in the gospel. You have the love of a father. You have the love of a creator. You have the love of a brother. You have the love of a husband, the, the love of a friend, and the love of a redeemer. And so the love of Christ is code for he accepts you, he has unbridled affection for you, and he has given you access to God and himself. Okay, somebody out there needs to mute. I can hear some little background noise. See that? The love of Christ. He's accepted you. He has affection for you. You have access to God through him. So he answers this question. Who will separate us? Will tribulation. That's outward pressure. Will distress. That's inward pressure. Persecution. Or famine. That's going without food. Nakedness. That means you need clothes. Peril. Danger of any kind. Or sword. Code for martyrdom. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Is there, is there anything out there? Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, sword. So Paul gives us a representative sample of seven adversaries with potential power to thwart us. These actually, except for the last sword, at this point Paul's living, we do know that he was martyred, so he actually underwent the, uh, the sword. All of the, the first six, Paul actually experienced in his own life. So he can speak by experience by the time he's writing this. So you see this, this little biography of Paul's in 2 Corinthians 11. He is responding to the charge of the super apostles who were known for their flashiness, their persuasive arguments. You need to follow me because I'm a big shot. Don't follow Paul. He's kind of a nobody. Look, he's persecuted. He's kind of beat up wherever he goes. That's not a mark of an apostle. And Paul answers by saying, oh, yes, it is. Are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. I'm talking like a madman. See, he's resistant to draw attention to himself. But nonetheless, he gives his resume of what qualifies him to be an apostle, identifying with Jesus, suffering for identifying with Jesus, and he lists sort of in summary fashion the kinds of things he's endured up to this point in his life. He says far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, often near death, five times are received at the hands of the Jews, the 40 lashes, lashes less one, Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers. In other words, danger everywhere. And toil and hardship through many a sleepless night in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of anxiety for all the churches. Who's weak that I'm weak? Who uh, is made to fall that I'm not indignant? All this to say, when Paul raises the question, what will separate us from the love of Christ? And he lists tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, and peril. 
He's talking about that from, per, from uh, personal experience. So he answers that question in verse 36, essentially saying, we're not surprised that these things happen. And he draws on Psalm 44. He echoes the voice of Psalm 44, which is a song of the sons of Korah. And he quotes it by saying, just as it is written, for your sake we have been put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. He finds his identity as a persecuted lover of God, follower of Jesus, in the psalmist's experience of persecution, in this lament, Psalm 44. So there it is there. You can see I've underlined the words Paul has lifted to substantiate the fact that nothing will separate us from the love of God. Here's an example. And in fact, it is for the Lord's sake we're experiencing these things. Psalm 44, 22. Yet for your sake, are we killed all day long and regarded as sheep to be slaughtered? So the Bible is quite transparent about the conflict that exists on earth between God and his people. And I just want to take a little excursus here, a little sidebar, and ask, why is it this way? Why don't we enjoy sort of a favored status on earth that physically protects us? You know, who hasn't thought that way? Like when, you, when you're converted and God calls a people to himself, he sets his love on them, his favor on them. Why aren't they sort of transported, so to speak, into a gated community where they can't be hurt? <clears throat> well, I want to explain the answer to that because you may have wondered that. First of all, we want to show Jesus promised persecution. You may recall his word, excuse me, his words on the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is a badge. It's a marker that you belong to the Lord. It's being persecuted for righteousness' sake. This, this hints that there's some conflict going on on the earth between the righteous and the wicked. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and other all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So you're right in line with the prophets who were persecuted for speaking the truth, for living righteously. John 15, 20, Jesus reminded his disciples in that upper room the night he was betrayed, remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. All these things they will do to you on account of my name because they do not know him who sent me. So there's something going on in reality where the hearts of people are at war with God. It's expressed in their warfare against Jesus, although they may not know that consciously. And so they take that out on the followers of Jesus. <clears throat> Isn't it interesting that in pop culture in America, you've noticed how frequently the name of the Lord Jesus Christ is taken in vain. So if you watch network TV, if you watch drama, comedies, etc., it is not the name of Allah, it's not the name of Buddha, it's not the name of any other religious figure that is cursed in dialogue. It is the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that reveals to me this hostility that is woven into the fabric of reality between Jesus and those that are ultimately opposed to him and at war with him, even though they may not know that consciously. 
Paul assured us of this in 2 Timothy 3.12. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Uh, while evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Paul expects this to be the case until Jesus comes again. And then finally, not to belabor the point in Revelation, uh, Revelation 6, 9, we read there, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar though the souls of those who'd been slain for the word of God and for the witness they'd borne. So there's persecution, there's hostility against the followers of Jesus. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? So they're asking the Lord for ultimate vindication and ultimate justice. They're not surprised that this is happening. They're simply wondering, Lord, when are you going to bring this to an end? And that is often the cry of those who uh, belong to the Lord. Okay, so I just want to point out where this comes from for you so that you're not surprised by it. As I'm saying, we see built into the fabric of reality, hostility, some theologians call it antithesis, like this light and darkness, and this persecution against the people of God. Where, in fact, does this come from? Well, if you go back to Genesis 3.15, and remember the context in Genesis, what's going on in Genesis? Paul is, excuse me, Moses is writing to a people who've just been rescued from 400 years of bondage, slavery in Egypt. And they've been delivered. They're wandering in the wilderness, waiting to take the promised land. And they have all kinds of questions. What's our relationship to the people in that land? Where did this promise that that land would be ours come from? Why aren't we, in fact, in that land? How did we get to Egypt? Who are these nations that seemingly hate us? So Moses is answering those questions to give a context to the people of God before they enter that land and find out that everybody in there is their enemy. And he goes back to the origins. That's what Genesis is, the book of origins. And he gives the story that, that uh, sets all of this in context. And this idea of antithesis that's built into the fabric of reality, this hostility between God's people and those that aren't, this light and darkness, it all comes from Genesis 3.15, what theologians call the proto-euangelion, the first announcement of the gospel. And it's the Lord speaking to the serpent. And he says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. In anticipation of Jesus defeating Satan at the cross, Satan trying to crush the Son of God. And of course, he failed. So what happens is, biblical history is from this point on framed between a conflict between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And in a sense, the reader of the Old Testament is, asked, is, is seeking an answer to the question, who exactly is this seed of the woman that will crush the serpent's head? When you get to the end of the Old Testament, to Malachi, you have pictures of the answer, but you don't have the full answer. It's not till you get to the New Testament, to Jesus Christ, that we get to the ultimate seed of the woman. But the Old Testament history is framed, though, as a conflict between, a conflict on earth, in flesh and blood people, between the seed of the woman, 
That's the line of the promise, starts with Abel, and the seed of the serpent. And you see this conflict immediately. Cain is obviously the seed of the seed of the serpent. He kills Abel. There's the persecution. There's the antithesis between good and evil. There's the hostility. And, from, and then you get, the, you get a, a genealogy that comes from Cain, but he is not in the land of promise. Those aren't the people God is concerned with. He's concerned with the people that are down through Abel's line. And so we see Noah. What happens with Noah? Well, the earth is so bad to the people of the seed of the serpent that God has to destroy it. Just destroy everybody on the earth. What's left on the earth is one righteous man, and it is through one righteous man that God is going to save humanity. Sound like Jesus? Through one righteous man, God saves humanity. Noah has three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. It's through Shem that the lead, the seed of the promise, the seed of the woman is going to come, not Ham and Japheth. So you have this, the origin of the Semitic people, the Jewish people. Here's the line of promise. That's why the genealogy brings us up to Abraham. And then Abraham has his son Isaac. Abraham has two sons. Isaac is the seed of the woman. Ishmael's going to be the seed of the serpent. Jacob is the seed of the woman. Esau's not in the line of promise. Paul's going to show you in Romans 9 that from the same womb came Jacob and Esau. One was elect, one wasn't. And then you get into the whole uh, Joseph narrative where, again, God is delivering this people through one man. Him as good as dead, <laughs> Joseph. Sound like Jesus? Although in Jesus we have a better deliverer, a better Jacob, a better Abraham, a better Noah. And then essentially, uh, and then of course Egypt is persecuting the people of God, the seed of the woman, while they're there in, uh, that requires the exodus. So Israel comes into the land. They're constantly in conflict with the other nations. Those nations that are persecuting the people of the seed of the woman are from the seed of the serpent. And then you come into the New Testament and what do you see with Christ? What's the first thing that happens? The, the baby Jesus is pursued to be killed by Herod. Herod is the seed of the serpent. Christ is the ultimate fulfillment of the seed of the woman. Jesus is then tempted in the wilderness before he begins his ministry. Satan, the seed of the, the serpent himself, is trying to destroy Jesus. And then it's so bad that when, when Christ is mixing it up with the religious leaders, if you remember in John 8, beginning at verse 31, he has this conflict with the religious leaders, and they're claiming that they're the right people because they can trace their lineage back to Abraham. Jesus says, you are of your father, the devil, the father of lies. So even though these people could trace themselves back to the seed of the woman, they are show themselves to be of the seed of the serpent because of the disdain for the word of God, their disdain for God and for his Christ. And I just, just want to take that sidebar for you to explain why Paul just naturally moves into this explanation of this hostility between the people of God and those who are persecuting and showing their hostility towards the people of God. Okay, so let's just go ahead and finish then our study. We have Paul's answer to his own question in verse 35. His answer to his own question in verse 35 is verse 37. But in all these things... Everything, this, all this persecution, this drama, this peril, this nakedness, this sword, in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer. The word conquer there in Greek is hyper Nike. Did you know that when you're wearing Nikes, you're wearing a, a shoe that says victory? Nike is victory, it's conquer. Paul uses the hyper conquer here. It's in all these things, 
we overwhelmingly conquer. So here in all these things, an echo of verse 28 of chapter 8. God works together in all things for the good of those who love him and are called toward his purpose. So Paul is saying that all these things that apparently seem to be against us, these persecutions, this hostility, this enmity, God is using these things actually for our conquering because they are driving us closer to Jesus. God causes the enemies of our faith to become the things that actually help our faith. In all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. What do you read in that phrase, through him who loved us? You see the cross. It's he who did not spare his own son, verse 32, but gave him up for us all, delivered him up for us all. How will that also with him, free to give us all things? So we are conquerors. And so look, isn't Jesus a picture of that? On the surface, it looks like Jesus is conquered by the cross. It looks like Jesus' enemies, tormentors, persecutors get the better of him. And actually, though they are held accountable in the economy of God for that wicked act, it is actually through the death of Jesus, him loving us to the end, laying his life down for us, giving himself up as a sacrifice in our place on the cross, accomplishing a salvation that secures us for the presence of God forever. It is through the cross that Jesus conquers sin, death, the devil, and the law. So there, there, therefore, the cross becomes our lives become a mirror of what Jesus did through the cross. He conquered through his cross, and all these persecutions and tribulations that we experience are vehicles through which they're not just putting us, they don't put us down. They're actually vehicles that drive us closer to the love of Christ and through which we overwhelmingly conquer. And so Paul gives this sort of conclusion. He gives a reason for that. And this is the last two verses of chapter 8, this Himalaya, Mount Himalaya of confidence and assurance that we have in the New Testament. Paul writes then in 38, for I'm persuaded. So here's his capstone, his final statement. He's reaching a crescendo. He, he, he says, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm reaching as far out as I can to, to expand your imagination, to expand your view, your purview, of anything that's absolutely possible to separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. Uh, so here we go. He says, I'm persuaded. Now that's a present tense, which means I've become and remain persuaded. This is the man who suffered all the things that we uh, looked at in 2 Corinthians 11. I am persuaded. I'm convinced that. And then he lists anything absolutely possible within the realm of possibility. He says, neither death nor life, that is physical existence, neither angels nor principalities, that would be spiritual powers, good or bad, nor things present nor things to come. So he's thinking horizontally in terms of time, things present, things to come, the present with its problems, the future with its forebodings, neither things present nor things to come, nor powers, that would be any force in the universe. And then he turns vertical, nor height, nor depth. He's looking at space now. He looked at time, he looked at space, he looked at powers, he looked at physical existence, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing. So that covers everything. <laughs> 
This is like comprehensive on steroids. There's nothing left to consider. This is all you could possibly consider. I'm convinced that neither death nor life, angels or principalities, things present, things to come, time, powers, height, depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Indeed, these are the things God uses. God turns on their heads. People think they're designed to destroy us. Actually, they all God uses to strengthen our experience of the love of God. Nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Boom! Do you see all the fireworks going off? All the assurance. Paul wants you living every day with this sense. Nothing can separate me from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. Not my sin, not the devil, not those who persecute me. No circumstance, not sickness, no plan. And it's, uh, yeah, it's the assurance that we saw that Doris shared with us earlier from um, Augustus Top Lady's wonderful hymn. Okay, let's, uh, there you go. Let's stop screen sharing. And I do have a few minutes for any questions or comments you would like to make. Um, Pastor, just a quick question sure, that might be a little like technical, so one of those excursus things you call it. Um, on the screen share where you were showing that God said he was going to put enmity between the man's, between the woman's seed and um, the serpent's, and then you showed that it was for the woman's seed was Abel. I, since Abel was killed and didn't have any offspring, how did that work? I would, would that not have been through Seth? Yes, it was. That's a very good point, Charlie. If you just read on, Adam and Eve have another child, Seth, and so Abel replaces, uh, excuse me, Seth replaces Abel, yes. Oh, okay, yeah. good, thank no, you. No, that's a very, uh, that's, that was in my original notes, I didn't copy to these notes, but yes, if you just read on, you see that Seth, in, in a sense, replaces Abel, so he carries on the line. And, and, and that's a good point, Charlie, that, that, that through the Old Testament, the line of promise can get really, really dim. It looks like, oh my goodness, it's going to be extinguished, but it never is because of the faithfulness of God to his promise that through the seed of Eve, one will come and do for human beings what they can never do, and that is Jesus, the ultimate seed of the woman. That's why the Gospels begin with the genealogies. Right? Matthew, doesn't Matthew trace Jesus back to Adam, Luke back to Abraham? They're showing you the seed of the woman is here. God kept his promise. So no, no matter how bleak history looks in the Old Testament. God's still working. God preserves his people, sometimes through one man and him as good as dead. But, and there's, of course, that's always picturing uh, uh, Jesus' work on the cross. So God is the God of resurrection. He brings life from the dead. Good point, Charlie. Thank you. So then let me just ask this follow-up thing that sure. since there's the connection with, um, with Noah being the one righteous man, then when the when the earth was destroyed, wouldn't the seed of the serpent have been destroyed since there was only one righteous man? Well, that's, but a, that's, again. that's a good question. Um, that's a good question. The obviously the answer is no because it continues, and um, 
it, what the genealogies make clear after the flood is that though Abraham has three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, uh, the, 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 the line of promise is going to continue through Shem, Shem, not the other two. So you could say that the other seeds get corrupted, as it were, kind of along the way. But that's a really good observation. So there may be a better answer to it than that, but that's the first thing that comes to mind. It's as if God always has on earth the seed of the woman, and he always has on earth the seed of the serpent. And it, ha it has to be that way to get us to the hostility between Christ and his tormentors and between the followers of Christ and their tormentors. But there may be a better answer to that question. That's, that's a really good observation. But that, the, the, those seeds are never extinguished on, in earth history. Well, it seems to me that out of Adam came to, out of Noah came to, yeah. out of Abraham came to, out of Isaac came to. So they're always within the, the seed is the, the corrupted seed. Yes, so that, yes. That's not different in Noah than it was in the others. Yes. And, you know, so the individual believer born to Christian parents, you're not saved because you have Christian parents. You yourself must call on the name of the Lord to be saved. Your Christian parents don't guarantee your salvation. You are responsible to respond to the free offer of the gospel. So that in that John 8 passage, beginning at verse 31, where the Jews are giving Jesus a hard time, because he, he basically says, you're not free. And they say, we're free. We're Abraham's children. They could pull out their papers and show their lineage traced back to Abraham, which in one thing, in one sense, is a wonderful thing. But all that does is make them more accountable to what the covenant demanded of them, which was to believe in the promises of the covenant. But they, Jesus is saying there, you're the seed of the serpent. Isn't he? Right? You're the father of the devil. What could be more the seed of the serpent? So, anyway, we're, we, are, we are accountable to, to the Lord, to call on the name of the Lord. Ourselves. I thought it's symbolic. Like, the flesh wages against the spirit. I think, I mean, I know with myself, I have terrible thoughts at times. Thank God I don't act on them. Yep. And I follow the spirit like when I put to death, I don't listen to the bad thoughts. True. But I, I would also, it'd be really interesting because what Paul says, it's so hard to believe how he was psychologically. <laughs> I mean, as a human, how do you go through that and just get up and keep walking? I mean, maybe he really, I mean, I would love to hear like a story about someone who historically knew Paul and talked with him psychologically and like I don't know I think as a human we're three-dimensional we're not just two-dimensional we have you know we have sorrow we have hurt and maybe that's just part of the fall you know it's not all hunky-dory like I and it's not, Caitlin, you know, in 2 Corinthians, it's 2, 3, or 4, Paul says, we despaired even of death itself. So things got really bad for him. And he's not saying he has joy in all these things. He's saying, I just want you to know that when you identify with Christ, don't be surprised if these difficulties come your way. I think he was a tough cookie. But see, but see what else did Jesus give him? Jesus gave him a sight of paradise. He poked his head and he saw heaven. 
We don't know anybody else in scripture that saw heaven and came back to tell us about it. He didn't give us any details, right? That's the next chapter in 2 Corinthians 12. I know a man who was caught up into the third heavens. I saw things I can't even describe it so good. I think God gave Paul that experience of heaven so that he could endure anything. I mean, he is the apostle to the Gentiles. He went all over the Mediterranean basin sharing the gospel. And as he shows us, there's great cost. Everywhere he goes, he's, the crap is beat out of him. Everywhere. But he keeps going. Like you said, he gets up, he keeps going. So he, he, had, he himself had a vision of heaven, but he also had the love of Christ profoundly deep in his heart. He knew himself to be a persecutor of the Lord. Jesus blinded him, stopped him on the road to Emmaus, appeared to him. I mean, he saw Christ. There's no doubt in his mind who he was serving or where he was going. And therefore, he could anything else was lesser in his experience. Doesn't mean it was pleasant. It was very, very hard. He said, we despaired even of life ourselves. So I think he was a tough cookie. I, and also, uh, we, that, this is why he's ending Romans 8 this way. He's making it clear we're going to be persecuted. Life's going to be tough. We cannot endure these things unless our hearts are filled with the love of Christ. Filled. I, I don't know if that addresses your concern, but I don't think he minimizes human pain and suffering at all. Thank you, Caitlin. All right, dear class, so what's happening next week? We'll start a 20-page handout on how to care for your next pastor. <laughs> leave it, only leave it up to share to develop a 20-page, uh, I'm sorry, a 20-point handout on that. So, well, class, thank you. Um, it's 9.59. Can I pray us out? Please. Great. Lord, we are, we are so needful of the love of Christ to fill our hearts, to, to uh, be that which we are assured can never, we can never be separated from. So Holy Spirit, take and use your word, your promises, the revelation of Jesus, who he is, what he's done for us, that we would be absolutely persuaded, convinced, beyond ever changing. Oh, Lord. We're so weak, so frail, so fickle, so but double-minded, left to ourselves, so, so vulnerable. Apart from the Holy Spirit giving our minds and hearts this experience of the love of Christ. And uh, so I pray that for myself and my brothers and sisters to be filled with this love, to know this love that passes all understanding, to be assured in it, and to be united inseparably to the reigning risen, interceding, irrepressibly kind, loving, and generous Jesus, whom to know is to have life itself. We pray for greater faith in his name. Amen. Thank you so much. This has been a great series. Very no, blessed good. by My it. My pleasure, guys. Thank you, Mike. Thanks, Thank Faith. Have a great week. Thanks, Thanks as always. All righty. See you at the drive-by maybe next Sunday. Get to see you next Sunday, the 21st, at the drive-by. Look forward to that. I hope, yes. Okay, bye. Bye.